Tonight's study is very interesting to me. We've talked for several weeks now about the parallels between Joseph's life and Jesus' life. And while, as I've said before, the New Testament doesn't come along and, and tell us specifically or implicitly that Joseph is a type of Jesus or a picture of him, the pictures are so stunning in his life, so overwhelming, that there's almost no other choice. That when you look at Joseph and what happens and the circumstances, it's, it's Jesus all over the place. And tonight is no exception to that. Genesis chapter 45, we will see the revelation of Joseph as he reveals himself to his brothers. And again, the parallels between Joseph and his revelation to his brothers and the revelation of Jesus Christ are pretty stunning. We're going to look at several of those tonight. But I want to back up just briefly. Think about where we've been. In our study last week, we ended with the sons of Israel standing before Joseph, literally scared out of their wits. Frightened to death. Joseph had been pushing all the right buttons, drawing out confessions from them, and truly testing the integrity of their repentance. Joseph needed the answer to one question. And that question is, were they truly sorry for what they had done to him? Are my brothers really sorry? Or are they just playing at this because they want food? Now granted, they didn't know it was Joseph. They were in Egypt to get food. They did not realize that this, this lord over all of Egypt was their own brother who they had sold into slavery. They didn't have a clue. And yet Joseph had to be sure. Now this is an important point. Because you could read the story of Joseph and just assume, oh, it's about payback. It's vengeance. Joseph is going to make them suffer in the way that he made, they made him suffer. He's going to get them back. He's drawing them through this long process, not telling them who he is, pushing their buttons, sending them away, bringing them back, calling them spies, sending them away, bringing them back again, all because of vengeance. That's not the heart of Joseph here. Joseph wants to know if they are truly sorry. Why? Because, and it is human nature and is critical to understand, there's a great truth. We need to repent before we can receive pardon. Some people may look at repentance in the Bible and say, why does God ask for repentance? He just wants us to grovel. Is that what it's all about? No, it's not what it's all about at all. God could, if He wanted to, restore us without our repentance. Because even our repentance doesn't save us. But you know what our repentance does? It readies us for redemption. It prepares us for pardon. It gets us ready. If we don't repent before coming to God, before He saves us, if we don't come to Him in repentance, then we will never receive pardon because we'll never believe pardon. Because we won't think that we need it. And until we come to that place where we know we need God's pardon, we need His forgiveness because we are all sinners, because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, until we land there, we can't receive redemption. Not because God won't give it, but because we won't take it. And Joseph is walking his brothers through this very difficult path, bringing them to that place of repentance, because before he reveals himself, before he forgives, before he pardons them, which obviously in his heart he already has, but before he tells them, hey, I'm Joseph, it's okay, they've got to come to that place where they're sorry for what they've done. Or it won't matter. It won't work. This, by the way, is the reason for John the Baptist's ministry before Jesus came. The forerunner. Have you ever thought about that? Why did God set it up? That there would be a forerunner, a man, an Elijah-type character, a prophet, 
A voice crying in the wilderness. Why did that have to happen before Jesus came? And the answer is very simple. To prepare the people for pardon. That's what John the Baptist was doing. In fact, before we get to our text tonight, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says the following, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. It's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40. Make ready the way of the Lord. Well, how do you do that? How do you make the path straight to the Lord? Repentance. Preparation for pardon. That's what John the Baptist's entire ministry was about. In fact, verse 4 of Mark chapter 1 says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. It needed to happen first. So that when Jesus came on the scene, the people were ready. They were already in a state of repentance. For the kingdom was at hand. This is why the Bible speaks so clearly about repentance, because it readies us for redemption. I love this verse, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. See, Joseph's brothers knew, or Joseph knew, that his brothers could not receive refreshment until they had repented, until they had gone through. Repentance. Well, the last and greatest test of Joseph, we saw in the last chapter, involved a silver cup. It's placed in the backpack of young Benjamin. You remember that? All the brothers are there. They get Benjamin. They have him. They get Simeon back. And they're headed back to their father, back to the land of Canaan. But Joseph has his steward plant a silver cup in Benjamin's backpack. And off they go, thinking everything is hunky-dory, until the servant comes running out after them, sent by Joseph, and says, Why did you guys steal my master's silver cup, that divining cup? They said, We didn't steal it. In fact, you can kill the person who you think stole it, because nobody stole it. One by one, oldest to youngest, he went through every backpack, till he comes to Benjamin, and there's the silver cup. And they're shocked, and they tear their clothes, and they're dismayed, and they head back to Joseph again. And that's that beautiful section of chapter 44 where Judah steps up. In fact, verse 16 of chapter 44, Genesis says, Judah speaking, says, What can we say to my Lord? And what can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves. Both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Ah, Exactly what Joseph was waiting to hear. Refreshing repentance. To finally hear, we are guilty. And not guilty of stealing the cup. Joseph knew it. Judah knew. They weren't guilty of stealing the cup. Somehow the cup got in there. None of them did that. But they were guilty. They did have sin. And that sin was the rejection of their brother Joseph. A sin, by the way, an iniquity, singular, by the way, a single sin. He doesn't say God has found out our iniquities, our sins, our generic bad behavior. He says he's found out our iniquity, our sin. What was that sin? It was the sin that had dogged these guys for 20 years. Longer than that. 22 years now. That sin of rejecting their brother, selling them into slavery. 
And they regretted it this whole time. They lived under this weight of guilt, under hiding this sin. Ever done that? You've got a sin in your life, something that you're just living with and dealing with, and it gets heavier and heavier. And the more you try and hide it, the more difficult it is to hide. Well, Judah finally speaks again. Verse 33, he says, Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. Benjamin didn't do anything. He's not guilty. I am. Let me pay for it. He takes his place. He steps in, in a beautiful moment, confessing the sin of all the brothers for their singular rejection of Joseph. In the middle, by the way, of their affliction. And finally, the stage is set. The drama can continue. The curtain rises for the revelation of Joseph to his brothers. Now, as we study chapter 45 tonight, there are two things, two primary areas we're going to look at. And if you're taking notes, you can jot these down to follow along in an outline. Number one, the revelation of his person. We will look at the revelation of Joseph, his person. But then we'll also look at the revelation of his purpose. So first, the revelation of his person. But before we go any further, I want to ask God to bless this study again. Father in heaven. Lord, I I can get rolling sometimes and, and almost forget to step back and ask you to bless these words. Not my words, Father, but your words. Holy Spirit, teach us tonight and be our guide. Lord, I know. We pray this over and over and over. I know to some it may sound like a broken record. But God, I need to ask you to speak. And I need to ask your spirit to be our teacher. And to get me out of the way. And Father, if there's anything that I speak that is not of your word, that it would be made clear to the listeners, to the hearers tonight. Father, keep us locked into your word. And help us to be not only hearers of the word, Father, but doers of the word. And may your word fall among our hearts like seed that is gobbled up in a lush land that can grow and truly produce fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The revelation of Joseph's person, verse 1, chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Man, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard of it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers, his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You see, the time was ripe for revelation. It was perfect for him to reveal himself in that moment, in the midst of their famine, and following their repentant confession, Joseph makes himself known. By the way, just a side note, the word revelation that we have for the book of Revelation in the New Testament comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. And apocalypsis means unveiling, revealing, to, to know what's coming, to have the mystery explained. Not something that's hard to understand. Those of you who went through a study of Revelation with me a couple of years ago, I guess now, have heard me say over and over that the book of Revelation is not a book that's hard to understand. That's a great lie of Satan, and many people will open up the book of Revelation and just go, oh, I don't get it, it's too much. Gang, it's called unveiling, revealing, apocalypsis. 
It is a revelation. Literally, Romans 16.25, by the way, says He is able to establish you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. You see, all the way up until Jesus came, it wasn't revelation. It was mystery. It was a secret. There were things the Jewish people would read in their prophets and not understand. What is he talking about? Where is this prophet coming from? What does this mean? And the rabbis would go round and round and still do today trying to figure out because outside of Jesus there is no revelation. There is no understanding. The mystery remains. But in Jesus, Paul says, the mystery is cleared up in the gospel, in the preaching of Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 16.26, he said this mystery now is manifested. In other words, you can see it. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. We wouldn't even have faith if the mystery hadn't been revealed. But it has been. Christianity, gang, is not a mystery religion. Christianity is an unveiled, revealed, true love of God seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In His death, His burial, His resurrection. Now I want you to flip in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 5. Because here we see a comparative prophecy, an amazing prophecy, about that time of revelation. When Jesus will reveal Himself. And not to the church. That time when Jesus, like Joseph, will reveal Himself to his earthly brethren, his brothers and sisters, the Israelites. The sons and daughters of Israel. Hosea chapter 5 verse 15, this single verse, it's powerful and I want you to see it in your own Bibles and follow it here. The Lord is speaking here. These are words of Jesus given to Hosea. Hosea chapter 5 verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until, and I have that word circled in my Bible, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. I will go away and return to my place. What did Jesus do? He died. He was crucified. But after the crucifixion, he rose again and then ascended. He returned to his place. And he hasn't been back since, has he? Oh, I know the Holy Spirit has. And the Holy Spirit has been very active and alive in the world. But Jesus himself, the incarnate Son of God, has not been back. And he will not be back. He will not set foot on planet Earth. He will not touch his toes on the green grass of this world until they express their guilt. Until Israel literally seeks his face. Until they acknowledge what they did. That they, like Joseph's brothers, rejected Joseph. They rejected Jesus. The very brothers of Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us what Annie's telling us. John chapter 1 tells us that he came to his own people. And they didn't recognize him. They rejected him. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. And when will they seek him, by the way? Well, it says in this prophecy, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Their affliction. In the tribulation. 
in that period of time when the world is going through literally hell on earth and it is that period of time we've talked about it over and over that God determines for Israel for the Jewish people why? to shake them up to wake them up to get their attention until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their affliction they will earnestly seek me that's the time of Jacob's trouble now, just reading on here, you've read this verse before, many of you, Hosea 6, verse 1. Here's Israel's response. Once they have, in their affliction, acknowledged their guilt and, and sought after his face, come, let us return to the Lord, they're going to say, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. And we've seen before, we've talked about this. Two days. If a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, it's been two thousand years. Two thousand years of the Jews no longer being just the people of God. Of them being on the outs with the Father, if you will. The time of the Gentiles. Two days, two thousand years, but on the third day, on the third day, He will revive us. He will raise us up that we may live before him. Verse 3 says, So then let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. Now back to Genesis 45. Verse 3 tells us that as Joseph is revealed, the brothers are dismayed. If you're reading the New American Standard Bible, the brothers are dismayed. They're dismayed. That's not the best translation of the word. The word here is bahal, which literally means to palpitate or to tremble inwardly. You think they were shaken before. When he calls out, I am Joseph, in that moment, they could not speak. They were blown away. They were terrified, dismayed, trembling. That silver cup of Joseph certainly did become a cup of trembling. And this is another powerful prophetic picture. Their response to Joseph. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is what Israel will do when they see Jesus. And Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6 tells us that one will say to him, and listen to this, someone's going to say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? The word arms there is literally hands, yad in the Hebrew. Literally, what are these wounds in your open hands? And it says that he will then say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. The wounds that I received in the house of my friends in the house of Israel now I tell you all this partially for encouragement because I don't believe this reunion between Jesus and Israel can be too far off and what's wonderful about that is seven years before that reunion happens we get to have one for the church will be called home to Jesus now Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers here it's a dramatic moment very emotional and while they stand there with their mouths hanging wide open Joseph goes on to reveal his purpose so we've seen the revelation of Joseph's person now his purpose but it's not really his purpose it's the revelation of God's purpose verse 4 
Now Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Under this heading of the revelation of his purpose, his purpose also means some things. It begins, number one, with pardon. The purpose of God begins with pardon. It's always been his purpose. Look at Joseph's graciousness there, here though. Hey guys, don't be hard on yourselves, he says. And don't be angry with yourselves. Don't work yourselves over. It's okay. It's alright. The time of blame and guilt and sorrow is over. And these words depict so powerfully the picture of Jesus. Because when we come to the Lord, He says, Hey, don't be grieved. Stop beating yourselves up over your sin. It's over. You're forgiven. Can we hear those words? Can we really accept those words? You are forgiven. Man, sometimes I think those words just need to wash over us again and again and again. It's not that He needs to say it. It's that we need to hear it. Forgiven. Don't be so hard on yourselves. What did Jesus say from the very position of the cross? Forgive them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. You see the graciousness there? Of a man who is being strung up, nailed into the wood, looking down and in that very moment, in the worst possible moment, to look at us and to say, they just don't get it. And Joseph looks at his brothers and they just don't get it. They don't understand. He begins to say to them, guys, don't be grieved. Don't be angry with yourselves. You sold me here, but God sent me before you to preserve life. You're pardoned. Let it go. And that's the divine design of God. Always has been to bring pardon to his people. Acts 3.17 says, And now, brethren, I know you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. Peter is speaking. And he says, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. It's a done deal now. And I know that you didn't know what you were doing. So now let's move on. Let's let the grief go. Let's stop beating ourselves up. Some people kind of like that game. I say to masochistic Christians, you know, I'm just so lame, I'm so lousy, I'm so pathetic. Oh Lord, please forgive me. And he's going, I did. It's happened. Why do we keep having this conversation? Let's move on into grace. Let's grow up in your salvation. Well, God's purpose all along has been pardoned. All the way back to Genesis 3.15. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 3.15? Remember that God is cursing the serpent. And in that very curse, for the first time, we get the first clue of the gospel. The proto-evangelicum, first gospel. That God says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, her seed being Jesus. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Oh, serpent, you're going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Why? To pardon the people of God. To save the lost. Pardon. So the purpose begins with pardon. Number two, his purpose continues with provision. Look at verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are still five years, Joseph says, in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. You know what's great about this? Joseph is absolutely sure of the vision of God. 
Remember, he had, Pharaoh had the dream and, Jesus, and Joseph interpreted the dream, said this is what the dream means, and Joseph is so absolutely sure, he is banking on it, he set up the entire kingdom around it, they are two years into the famine, and he says, oh yeah, and there's five more years coming. I know this, how do you know this, Joseph? Well, because God said there would be. No doubt, he is sure of it. And he says, there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. And don't be deceived. Remnant, the word remnant every time it's used in scripture, speaks of Israel and nobody else. It is not a word that's applied to Christians. It is applied to Israel. I, he said, I will say, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great Deliverance. A great deliverance? Just Jacob's family. Bringing him in, saving him from the famine. I mean, it's a nice deliverance, but is it a great deliverance? No, we'll read about the great deliverance. That's in the books of that book of Exodus. So even here, Joseph is hinting at something much, much greater, much huger, much more fantastic that's going to happen 400 years later. And that's the Exodus. When they will come back out of Egypt. But God, he does a cool thing here. He sets it up to get the Israelites into this little land in Egypt, this land of Goshen. And there, huddled together, this little mass of people, he begins to bless them and bless them and bless them. And then they end up in slavery. But even as slaves, he continues to bless them and bless them and bless them. They grow huge, a massive people. All the while, they're protected from something much worse than the slavery of Egypt. And that is the sin of Canaan. They needed to get out of the sin of Canaan. You look at Jacob's sons and the stories we've read over in the last several chapters in Genesis. These guys were heading down a bad road and they were heading down that way fast. And so the famine, yes, it was one thing, a deliverance from the famine. But God delivered them from an area that would have literally eaten them up. The Israelites would have been lost to the sin of the Canaanite if God had not pulled them out there. He pulled them out and now Joseph says, Oh, he has preserved a remnant in the earth to keep you alive by a great deliverance. This is just awesome. God is at work. But again, what amazes me is the awareness of Joseph. I, I said it last week and the week before that. This is the way to live. To say no matter what happens to me, whether my brothers sell me into slavery, or I get tossed into prison, or I reign second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, whatever circumstance, God's at work. And He's doing something here. And I may be uncomfortable, and I may not like it, and I probably don't understand it, but God's at work. If we can get our arms around that and grasp that concept, it changes everything. Because no matter how bad life gets, hey, God's at work. And this life is a snap. Joseph reveals the purpose of pardon and provision, saying God is using me as an instrument of his provision. Verse 9, he says, Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. In verse 10, he says, You shall live in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. In verse 11 he says, there I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come. You and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. As we talked about on Sunday, Joseph, Joseph is just a steward. I am simply a steward. We are managers 
of what God has already given to us. Managers of God's provision. And Joseph gets this. He knows it clearly. He sees it. He's in this position second to Pharaoh. He could have crushed his brothers. He could have crushed anyone. He could have set up during the five years, the seven years of plenty, before the seven years of famine, he could have set up Egypt and himself and said, hey, forget you, rest of the world. We're going to reign supreme. I've got this great position. Why should I care about anybody else but me, myself? I'll just take care of my needs. And I'll use Pharaoh and maybe I'll be Pharaoh someday. I'll just go my way. But Joseph, for all his power, is just a manager of God's stuff. Luke chapter 12, verse 42, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. And I can guarantee you of something. Joseph is going to have a huge role in the coming kingdom. Joseph, who was the greatest, in my opinion, manager of God in all of Scripture. Joseph, who was used by God his entire life, Managing God's possessions to save Egypt, the surrounding nations, and this little remnant of people called Israel. Well, the third aspect of God's revealed purpose, the first two being pardon, the second one being provision, the third is praise. Look at verse 12. Behold, your eyes see, Joseph goes on, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. In other words, it's really me. Don't let the Egyptian outfit and the makeup and, you know, all that fool you. It's me. Verse 13, he says, Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Now wait a minute. Everything was going so well. Joseph seems so spiritual. And all of a sudden he seems to make a left turn. And tell dad of my greatness. My splendor, my glory, my grandeur, if you will. Tell Dad I did all right for myself. You guys did. You're still shepherds. But I am second over all of Egypt. Isn't it grand? Look at my house. Look at my things. Tell Dad how fantastic I have become. And I think, Joseph, you're being a little braggadocious here. You're going a little far. You're being a little proud of yourself. Ooh, look at me. Tell my father what you've seen. My splendor, my glory, my great name. And we read this and we wonder, I wonder, is Joseph just being a little prideful here? Now stop and think about this for a moment. I don't think there's a father on planet earth who loves his kids, who doesn't love to hear about what's going on in their lives. Who isn't absolutely thrilled when his kids are spoken well of by somebody else. I was driving over here to rehearsal, this was about two months ago, with Leif. We're driving in the car and just talking about different things. And, and Leif says out of the blue, he says, you know, Rick, i got to tell you something. And you guys need to permit me for a moment to brag on my daughter. and She's going to get red-faced and embarrassed, so nobody look at her. <laughs> but we're driving along and Leif says, i just got to tell you, Eileen and I, we have noticed that Hannah, in this last year, has just become such a godly girl. And we're so impressed. And I'm driving along and I just swell up. I'm just like, 
Yes, she is. That's my girl. And, and for a moment there, I couldn't remember a single thing she had ever done wrong. She's fantastic. She is the perfect daughter. You know what? I love that, though. And any parent here, you know when someone says, hey, I was watching your kid, and they just did great. I was listening, you know, to Heather sing. And, oh, what an angelic voice. I mean, when you say things... The parent goes, that's great. I love that. It's so encouraging. Jacob needs a little encouragement right now. He spent 20 years thinking his son is dead. And now he's sitting back in Canaan thinking his other sons may be dead as well. And he's starving to death. And life is bad. And Joseph says, tell dad it's good. Tell him of the splendor. Tell him God has taken great care of me. And, and Jacob, man, when he hears this, well, you'll see what happens when he hears this. But dads, there is nothing more delightful than hearing about how wonderful your kids are. Now, there, listen here, before we move on from this, there's something else you should know. There is a way that you and I can do something to delight our father's heart today. And that's talk to him about his son. Do you ever do that when you're praying? Just thank God for Jesus. Just dote on Jesus in prayer. Lord, Father, your Son is so awesome. So wonderful. So gracious. So marvelous. I, I, am, I, just, I love your Son. I'll tell you a few things that bring more joy to the Father's heart than hearing about the Son. All the good things that He's done. Talk to God about what He means to you. Because when a father hears this kind of good report about his son, he's blessed. John chapter 5, verse 22. For not even the father judges anyone, Jesus says, but he's given all judgment to the son. So that all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. You want to bless God? You want God to swell up in his heart with delight? Dote on Jesus. Talk to him about what Jesus means to you in your prayer life. I promise you God will love it. Well, the fourth aspect of God's revealed purpose is proximity. We've got the pardon and the provision and the praise and now the proximity. Verse 13, second half of the verse, Joseph says, you must hurry, hurry now and bring my father down here. And he goes on, verse 14, And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards his brothers talked with him. And just two verses, it's not enough. I want to see more of this scene. This is one that I want to pop the DVD in when we get to heaven and just watch over and over and over. Joseph and his brothers, the reunion. It must have just been awesome. Weeping and hugging and I'm so sorry. Oh, I love you. Let it go. It's good. We're great. We're back together. Proximity. The brothers are closer in this moment than they have ever been in their entire lives. Not include, including even before Joseph was driven away from home. They have never been this close. Now again, God wanted to safely tuck Israel away in Goshen. Protect them. Keep them there for a time. While the sin of the Amorites ran its full course. But in the immediate, the closeness of Joseph and his brothers is awesome. All these years of wondering and, and waiting and not knowing. And the, the 11 brothers possibly thinking Joseph was dead. Man, he was sent into slavery. Who knows what happened to him? And now they're together in close 
proximity. What's funny to me is back in chapter 43, verse 18, do you remember what the brothers said when they came to Joseph Steward as they came into his house? We're afraid he's going to fall on us and steal our donkeys. He's going to fall on us, and he did. He falls on them, but not like they expected. He falls on them weeping. He falls on them throwing his arms around them. He falls on them kissing and hugging and weeping and loving them, which is how Jesus falls on those who come to him. I mentioned this last week, but so many people come to Jesus afraid. Afraid of the Lord's house. Man, if I enter that barn, what's going to happen to me? What's Jesus going to do? He might fall on me and I might all of a sudden get religion. (laughs) I might get that stuff. I might get stuck. I might have to go back the next week and the next is going to change everything. It's going to ruin me. He might fall on me and the truth is He will. You're right. It's exactly what happens. Jesus falls all over us. Luke chapter 20 verse 17, Jesus looked at them and He said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And Jesus made a clear choice. Fall on me, and you know you're going to be broken. You're going to be in pieces. It's called repentance, as we were talking about before. And it's not an easy thing to do. And it can be painful. To fall on me. And I will wrap my arms around you and love you. However, if you don't, the other option is the stone, the chief cornerstone, will fall on you. And if that happens, you'll be scattered like dust. If you're in Christ, you've already begun to experience all these things that we've looked at. You've already begun to experience this pardon and provision and praise and proximity. And a day is coming... Soon, I hope, soon, I pray, when we're going to feel the full weight of all these things. But reading on, verse 16 tells us, Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house, that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. Isn't that how God works things out? And you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come and do not concern yourselves with your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh, he's on Joseph's side. By the way, it's interesting that he is so much. There is a period in history that's believed that that there was a group of leaders. This is true. There were a group of leaders historically in Egypt called the Hyksos people. H-Y-K-S-O-S. And they were leaders for a time, held a dynasty in Egypt. And it's believed that the Hyksos Leaders, the people, were in Egypt at the time. And this pharaoh was a Hyksos pharaoh. And what's interesting about that is their lineage is from Shem. They're Shemites or Semitic. They had a common ancestry with the Hebrews. And so it's possible that's why this pharaoh is so positive toward Joseph. And toward Joseph bringing his entire Hebrew Israelite family on into Egypt. But whatever the reason, Pharaoh is saying, we'll give you the fat of the land. Take our wagons. And by the way, wagons in those days were unheard of, especially for Joseph's family. 
They wouldn't have seen them, or if they had, this was something that only you know the advanced people, maybe over there in Egypt, would have. They didn't have them, and Jacob's going to see the wagons coming in a few minutes, and it's going to be a rather stunning event for him. Uh, a new thing, loaded up with all kinds of goods. Something you should know about Goshen, by the way. It's funny, we, we watch, I don't know if you've seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. I've seen it over and over. I usually watch it about once a year. I just love that movie. Any kind of epic. I love epics. But in that movie, they show the children of Israel in the land of Goshen, and they're painting the picture of their slavery and how awful it is and how painful it is and how dry and desert and disgusting that Goshen is, just mud pits and dirt and sand. That's it. That's not the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen in Egypt is lush. It sits right on a huge lake just to the south of the Mediterranean Sea. It is one of the best spots in all of Egypt. And that's the place that God ordained that the children of Israel stay for 400 years. Not southern Egypt in the hot, dry desert land. Not the Sinai Peninsula where they could barely survive. Oh, he took them into that when they needed to be there too. But Goshen was beautiful a lakeside, lush land. And I wonder how many times, as the brothers of Joseph are listening to all this going on, and are walking back, how many times they pinched themselves just to see if it was real, or pinched each other. Judah, knock it off, man. Simeon, cut it out. I'm okay, I'm aware. I know this isn't a dream. Ow, look, Reuben? I wonder how often they ask themselves, lying out under the stars on their trip back, and it was a long trip back up to Canaan, lying out at night looking at the stars going, could this be? Is this even possible? This is outrageous. This is beyond anything. We're in the middle of a famine here. And we thought our brother was dead at our hands. And now everything is just rosy. It's per- it couldn't be any better than this. I wonder if all the way back to Canaan they were just quizzing each other to see if what they really heard was true. I wonder if they were revisiting over and over their sin and their guilt and what they had done to their brother Joseph, and maybe you can relate. It's a game we sometimes play. I call it second-guessing the blessing. And this is how it works. It's very simple. God blesses me, and I say, Thank you, but I don't deserve it, Lord. And God says, It's got nothing to do with what you deserve. I just want to bring it to you. And I say, yes, but I don't want to expect too much of you, Lord, for fear I'll be greedy. And I just feel guilty when you give me anything good. And God says, don't worry about it. I won't bless your greed. Not going to do that. But I'd like to bless you if that's okay with you. And I say, sure, but... And he says, Rick, allow me to be gracious. Why why won't you just accept what I'm giving to you? Stop second-guessing the blessing. And start receiving it from a Father who loves you. You see, that's the way God is. And I'm not talking prosperity gospel here. I'm not saying if you do X, Y, and Z, God will give you A, B, and C. I'm saying, unequivocally, God loves His children. God desires to bless His children. His children are the ones who have trouble with it. We're the ones that struggle with it. We struggle with it when someone else gets blessed. We struggle with it when we get blessed. Oh, I don't think I should have these things. Okay, if you're not caught up in the things, then thank God that He's chosen to bless you as He has. It's not a bad thing to be blessed. The brothers of Joseph, they don't deserve a stick in the ground, but what do they get? They get Goshen and the fat of the land. Deserving it is not the point. Joseph loves them. 
And in his generosity, he just wants to give. Verse 21. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them, now watch this, he gave changes of garments. Because you see, when you repent and you're redeemed, it changes you. It changes your clothes. It changes your garments from sin-soaked and blood-stained to white as snow. He gave them changes of garments, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Benjamin made out. He got a ton of great stuff. His wagons were bigger than anybody else's. And this is what's wonderful about what happens when people are pardoned and provided for. Listen to the impact. There's no jealousy anymore. The other sons of Israel, we don't even have a hint of them looking at Benjamin and going... Well, that's not quite fair. How come he gets that? I didn't get that. I understand we're all pardoned, but shouldn't the provision be the same for all of us? Shouldn't it be equal and fair and everybody get the same exact thing? The brothers are far beyond that now. Far beyond that because there is no more any comparison or envy or jealousy. They're just so blown away by Joseph's mercy and generosity They don't care who has what. And you know, won't it be great when Jesus calls us home and we experience the same thing? The Bible tells us some people are going to have certain kinds of crowns. Some people are going to have jewels in their crowns that I won't have. And I'm not going to care. I'm not going to give a rip. It's not going to matter to me one iota. If I'm just in heaven, that's enough. And some of you are going to have more than I have. God bless you. It's not going to matter. Some of you are going to have less than I have. And it's not going to matter. It's no big deal because we're all going to be in the Father's house. We will have been pardoned and we will experience it so wonderfully that all the jealousy and immaturity and envy and comparison that happens on planet Earth is not going to exist. I can't wait for that day. God, we need that day. The full weight of His pardon. We're just going to look at each other. You know what we're going to say? Two words. We're going to look at each other and go, far out. (laughs) That's awesome. By the way, a little hint. If you want to experience some of heaven right now, then stop comparing. Stop looking what other people have. And start just praising God for what He's blessed you with. Start thanking Him now for the pardon. And praise Him that other people have been blessed, provided for, and pardoned as well. That's heaven on earth. And we can begin experiencing it right now. It was, com- it was competition and it was comparison that drove the sons of Israel in their younger days of in- immaturity. They were looking at Joseph, all the stuff that he had, the big coat with the big sleeves. Well, I'm like a big coat. And it drove them to kicking out their brother. And it still works like that in the world today. Let the comparisons go. Put away the competition. And enjoy the refreshment of repentance as the brothers enjoy it in the revelation here of Joseph. Verse 23. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt. And ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance or meat for his father on the journey. In other words, ten donkeys full of food just for the journey back. Just so he could have some things to nibble on as he was traveling. Verse 24, so he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, listen to this, 
Do not quarrel on the journey. <laughs> you know, quarrel is one way to, to uh, translate that word, but I think it's, it's bigger than this. So look at various ways. And, and in the Hebrew, the Hebrew language is so colorful that many times there will be three, four, five different ways a word can be translated. And you have to look at the context of the sentence to understand exactly what the word is saying. And this word here, it can mean quarrel, but it means much more. The King James Version translates it more literally, don't fall out on the way. As you're traveling home, guys, don't fall out on the way. Don't be dismayed. Don't, don't be angry. Don't get upset. Don't get sidetracked, man. Beeline it back to my father. Get him and make another beeline straight back to me. The sooner the better. I want to bring you home. Don't fret. Don't fear. Don't fall apart on the way. On the way. Not on the journey. The word journey is literally the way. Christians... In the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 2, among other verses, were called those who walked in the way. Those who walked in the way. I think that's very cool. You read through Acts and, and Luke's writing along, and all of a sudden he'll say, and the people of the way, blah, 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 blah. And I think, that's cool. We're on the way. We're in the way. We're the people of the way. And Jesus, in John 14, 6, said, I am the way. So if we're on the way and in the way and people of the way, then we're on Jesus. <laughs> And in Jesus, and people of Jesus. And Joseph says to his brothers, don't fall out on the way. Don't get bogged down. Don't give up. Don't go back to your own old ways. It is a great word of exhortation for us tonight. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. One of my favorite verses in Scripture. And listen closely to this. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We're not those who go back to our old ways. We don't shrink back to destruction. We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And I love this verse, and it drives me, and it compels me. And as a pastor, i got to tell you, there is nothing more heartbreaking than watching someone fall out on the way. And it happens a lot. It does. It's probably the single most discouraging thing a pastor can see happen. And I'm not speaking about anyone in particular here at the bridge. But I've seen it a lot. Cheryl and I were just talking a couple of weeks ago about some kids who were in our youth ministry back in California. There's one guy, Kevin Leibach, who is a youth pastor now. <laughs> that is so cool. And I'm thrilled about that. But there are others who have fallen out on the way. And it breaks my heart because I saw how passionate they were for Jesus back then. Saw how much they loved him. They say that the largest percentage of people who come to Christ come to him before age 18. The problem is that between 18 and 25, we lose the largest percentage of people who have come to Christ. Because they fire up, they flame up, they get excited. It's passion time. It's follow the Lord time. Galen and Aaron, I'm going to pick on you guys for just a second here. Sitting in the back there, Aaron's got the little red riding hood on. They're working for Youth Dynamics this year. They're both doing internships for Youth Dynamics. And by the way, they both need support. Okay? The bridge is doing something, not as much as I'd like, but individually, if you guys want to give some support, talk to them, because okay? they can both use it. But I love watching what's going on here, because here are a couple of young people in that 18 to 25 age range who are not falling out on the way 
They're making decisions right now that will impact radically. Guys, it's going to alter the rest of your life. And I'm so grateful and glad to see that because so many make choices the opposite direction. And it's tragic. And I really got off the point here. But I want to tell you something. The reason I brought this up, there is one reason, a number one reason, why people fall out on the way. It is bigger than any other reason. And as I thought about this and prayed about this over the last week, it is the reason that everything goes back to. It's because the word is not getting in. That's it. You can say, oh, Rick, it's, it's the desires of the world. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the things that draw them away. No, it's the word is not getting in. For if the word was getting in, it protects against, it guards against the desires of the flesh. How shall the young person secure their heart, protect their heart? It's God's word that does it. And it's the fact that you all, as you sit here week in and week out, coming back time and time again, middle of the week, you got better things to do? Well, no you don't. But you could. A lot of people think, I've got better things to do. I get home late from work. I've got to get up early the next morning. I've got stuff going on all week long. Gang, there's nothing more important than what you're doing right now. And it's not listening to me. It's getting into the Word. It is consuming the Word. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells the parable of the sower and the seed. You know the parable, you've heard it. A man goes out and he begins to toss seed out. And Jesus' disciples come to him after he tells the parable and says, We don't understand. We don't get it. And so Jesus explains in verse 11 of Luke chapter 8, he says, The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Let's be clear about that. The seed is God's word. Those beside the road are those who have heard. But the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those when they hear, and see if this sounds like someone you know, possibly yourself in past times. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Woohoo! Praise God! And these have no firm root. Oh, they believe for a while, but in time of tension they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And that describes, I fear, a vast number of people in the church today. Oh, they're there. One or two Sundays a month. You know, they, they, they get in just enough for the grace points and they make their showing. But there's no maturity. There's no growth. There's no fruit in their lives. The fruit will not come without the seeds, folks. Then the seed is the Word. And if you want to have a fruitful spiritual Christian life, the only way is to be filling up your heart with the seed, the Word of God. Well, Jesus goes on, Luke 8.15, He says, But the seed in the good soil, listen close, these are the ones who have heard the Word in an honest and good heart and they hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance not with ease Jesus doesn't say the Christian walk is easy he doesn't say going along the way is a pleasure trip it's not always it is a time of perseverance it's made up of those who are clinging to the word holding on tight persevering and producing much fruit because the word can't help but produce fruit in our lives. Don't fall out on the way. Hang in there. And let me tell you this. We are so close. We are closer now 
than we have ever been. Now you may go, well, duh. Hey, I wasn't the first to say that. Paul, Romans 13.11 says, It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. You You realize that every moment of every day, you draw closer to that time of salvation. You draw nearer to that moment when Jesus says, Come up here and we go home. And I'm convinced for all kinds of reasons that that is right around the corner. Verse 25. So they went up from Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him saying, Joseph is still alive and indeed he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned for he did not believe them. That word stunned, literally his heart went numb. His heart went numb. You're telling me my son Joseph is alive? Is this some cruel joke? I I can't believe that Joseph is alive. I won't believe until I see the nail prints in his hand and the sword print in his side. And Thomas said that, didn't he? I can't believe people for 2,000 years have railed on the doubting Thomas. You know, Thomas was the one who was willing to go to Jerusalem and die with Jesus just a couple chapters before in the book of John. Let's go die with him. Let's fight with him. Let's stand with him. I don't believe it was doubt at all in Thomas's life. I just believe his heart went numb. But how much, how much destruction can a man handle in one weekend? Watching his Lord and Savior strung up, hung up on the cross, crucified, killed before his very eyes. The only hope Thomas ever really had in his life, gone. And as the apostles came and began to say, Thomas, he's alive! We've seen him! Thomas says, I haven't. And I can't bear this, guys. Don't tell me these rumors. Until I have seen him myself and put my fingers in the holes and my hand in his side. And I love the Switchfoot song called Redemption where he says, I've got my hands at redemption's side whose scars are bigger than these doubts of mine. Well, that's where Jacob was. Man, my son Joseph is alive. Can't believe it. His heart literally goes numb. He didn't believe the word which he had heard because his heart was numb and aching. But watch this, verse 27. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent carry him, to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. His heart softened. It came alive. The numbness went away. Like, you know, when you've been sitting with your legs crossed, maybe in like an orange chair for a long, long time. And you go to stand up, and it's like, oh, I have no feeling at all in my leg. But it starts to tingle. And it starts to come alive. And don't you love that feeling? It's like, ooh. It's like a, a free little electronic massage in my leg for about 30 seconds there until life comes back to it. And that's what's happening to Jacob's heart. His heart, numb, dull, begins to beat and come alive. He sees the wagons from afar. He sees it coming exactly as his sons have said. And and for a moment, all the doubts are gone. And Jacob looks up. He revives. And then, verse 28, Israel said, (laughs) Jacob revived and Israel said, It's enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Finally. 
Finally, Jacob sees the wagons. Israel revives. And who believes the word he's heard? Israel does. Man, let me leave you with this tonight. Even though faith falters, like Jacob's has so many times, even though my world may seem a place of despair, even when I feel done in by doubt, gang, the wagons are coming. And all you have to do is lift up your eyes and look. Fix your eyes, Hebrews 12, 2 says, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How does Jesus perfect my faith? Man, as I keep my eyes on Him, as I cling to Him on the way, as I don't shrink back, as I don't fall out on the way, as I cling and hold on to Him. Man, He perfects my faith. So keep watching for the wagons. Keep your eyes open for Jesus' return. Don't fall along the way. Don't shrink back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your servant Joseph, your servant Jacob, and your servants, the sons of Israel. Through them, Lord, we have such an experience here because we relate so well to their lives. We relate, Father, to hurting our brothers. And we relate to doubting. We relate to the fear. And yes, Lord, we relate to the revelation. As Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, so we have had a moment of revelation where we have come to see you, Jesus, and trust you, and believe in you. And Jesus, we long for that ultimate moment of revelation when our faith goes beyond just believing and becomes actual, ultimate, amazing, overwhelming experience. And God, may we never take our eyes from the horizon. May we never stop looking for You. Never stop expecting Your return at any moment. Quicken and enliven our hearts, Father, as we take in the Word day in and day out as we fellowship with each other day in and day out, as we spread the love of Jesus, not because we're such wonderful, loving people, but because, Jesus, You have planted the seed of Your Word which grows the fruit of love in our lives. God, may we impact this area. And may we join with other brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches in the area to proclaim the Gospel. May we, Father, may we stop being churches that compare themselves to other churches. And forgive us, Lord, when we do that. Forgive us right here at the bridge when we look at what we're doing and what other people are doing in other churches and compare. That's so childish. That's so immature. And it so sidetracks us on the way. May we stay focused on Jesus. And God, we do thank you for your Son. And we praise you for your Son. He is glorious and wonderful in our absolute love. And we praise the name of Jesus as we pray in the name of Jesus tonight. Amen.